Hello and welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics and jazz and another of our Noble Hearts forums. These are panels that deal with pressing political, ethical, economic, uh, sociological, all sorts of topics and usually with an international focus. And they could be about pretty much anything our panel is interested in discussing and that covers a lot of ground. Now our panelists for these Noble Hearts forums were all members of the same high school class. I was there too a few years back, a few years. We went to a school that was uh, pretty well respected. In fact, at the time that we went there, it was Regis High School was considered the top high school in the country, as I recall. Uh, we've, we've fallen all the way down to top Catholic high school in the country, but ah well, what can you do? Uh, our panelists today include uh, panelists that you're familiar with, and, and some that you're not. Uh, newcomer on the list over here is Dr. Vinnie Mosco, who is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Queen's University, Canada, where he held the Canada Research Chair in Communication and Society. Uh, he's also Distinguished Professor of Communication at the New Media Center, Fudan University in Shanghai. That should give you a hint of where we're going with this today. Shanghai, okay, maybe not there particularly, but the place within which and all that. Uh, he's the editor or author of, of 26 books and numerous articles and was recently recognized by the International Communication Association uh, with the C. Edwin Baker Award for his outstanding scholarly contributions to research on media, markets, and democracy. Keep those three words in mind as you think about Shanghai and you'll get an even more refined idea of where we're going today. Uh, Dr. Charles Webble is, uh, is familiar to anyone who has listened to these mics. Uh, he is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague, a five-time Fulbright scholar, uh, publisher of 13 books, many of which deal with issues of war and peace. And he's now working on volume two of his three-book trilogy, modestly entitled the fate of this world and the future of humanity, as well as a novel, Academia. That's A with three Ks after it, A-D-E-M-I-A. <laughs> ah, Charles, but uh, I, I can only imagine, and I, and I certainly would look forward to, uh, to seeing a copy of that. that. That sounds like it should be rather interesting. We have a non-Regean joining us on the panel today. Su Luo was born and raised in China. And he spent a year in the US as a high school exchange student and eventually began his university studies in the Czech Republic where he took several courses with our own Dr. Charles Webel and has clearly parlayed that connection into a seat on today's Noble Hearts panel, which bodes very well for his future. Well, he continues to live and study in Czech Republic where he is pursuing a PhD in psychology and uh, I, it is a welcome addition, obviously. We have two out of our three panelists, obviously, with very clear Chinese connections, and Charles with a connection to all things in all places at all times. And I say that without any kind of snark. Uh, Charles is uh, our go-to guy for pretty much anything, and we're very happy to have him with us. I would have hoped to have had today Dr. Bill Mulligan, and he may yet join us, uh, but at the moment we're having some technical connection difficulties. We'll see if those get better as the day goes on. Uh, ah, for the simplicity of our youth. Russia had the bomb, 
They were our arch enemy, and all of China owned a copy of a little red book, and they shook it around, uh, and they were our enemy too. Government and American media, by and large, were in a communications lockstep, and you didn't have to think a lot about stuff. It was them versus us, plain and simple. Now, we had a Noble Hearts Forum on the Russo-Ukrainian situation just two weeks ago, and above all else, it showed that there is nothing so plain and simple about current American relationships with our historically perceived enemies. Now, the overall conclusion of that panel was that America was way out over its skis, again, and had no business interfering in the internal affairs of Russia or Ukraine, and certainly not on a military level or with military implications. There were a series of compelling historical reasons given for all this, showing America's misbehavior in the past and how it's gotten us into protracted wars with ethical consequences that surely belie our claims to being the world's greatest constitutional democracy. Now, only Charles Webble on our panel again today felt it was necessary to present an alternate scenario where actually Russia crosses the border and attacks Ukraine and goes on to attack the Balkan states. And, well, the conversation sort of stopped there. And I'm sure in light of what happens in Ukraine in the next several days or weeks, uh, we could have a very different or certainly a more nuanced panel on America's most appropriate response to Russia. That's the beauty of these panels. As long as positions are thought out and, and internally uh, felt and, and, and seriously considered, that opinion is supported and welcomed, and that's the way I expect it'll be today. But the topic will not be Russia. It's China. And as far as I'm concerned, it makes America's Russian relationship seem simple by comparison. China is our perceived potential enemy, especially when you consider things like the independence of Taiwan, dominance of the South China Sea for trade and military purposes. Uh, it's our competitor a major supplier of goods at the same time. Uh, how do you, I don't know. It's, it's uh, even with our trade deficit going up in double digits with China, even as most of the Trump tariffs remain in place, that's, that's a tough one to square. And, and by the way, China finances a significant chunk of the American debt resulting from our trade imbalances and other things. It's a complicated, almost a schizophrenic sort of relationship. And like any relationship as complicated as that, it permits, it, it encourages oversimplification, at least on the part of a lot of people. Some way of looking past all these complexities and coming up with a palatable, if not an accurate description of what China is to America. So let, let, let's get simple. Let's, let's not dumb it down, but let's hopefully simplify it slightly. And this is going to be a communications question as much as anything. And it's, so there, Vinny, Vinny Mosco, this is going to go to you. Mm -hmm. Is China our current or potential enemy? And whose purpose does it serve to have us thinking of China that way? Well, I think it's a great question, Rich. Thanks for having me on the panel uh, today. Um, I can understand why people might consider China to be our enemy. After all, it, the arrangement that brought Canada into the global world economy uh, wound up uh, destroying most manufacturing jobs in the United States. So 
I can certainly understand that many Americans, particularly working class Americans uh, who have lost skilled jobs, might consider China to be an enemy. But in the broad sense, no, it's not. It may become an enemy, but it's not. As you mentioned, China is a major trading partner. China is the can be easily uh, understood as America's banker. So yes, uh, there we are competitors, but certainly not yet uh, enemies. Now that may change. That may very well change if uh, what we're beginning to see as uh, a, a, a more uh, aggressive uh, strategy on the part of uh, Xi Jinping and his government uh, is pursued uh, in the Pacific. Uh, I think particularly, uh, you mentioned earlier, what would happen if uh, Russia went into Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania? What would happen to our relationship if China decided to retake Taiwan, yeah, uh, yeah. a significant, yeah. uh, and at, at that point we might more generally consider it an enemy. But right now, it's a prime competitor. Indeed, if I may just add, um, in in the 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 engine that drives uh, the U.S. economy today, that is big tech. China is the only the only serious competitor in the world and is matching up quite well uh, with the United States on those grounds. So uh, it is very worrisome. We have a strong uh, competitive connections to China, but no, it's not yet an enemy. Who is, but there are, there are sources, there is information out there that basically would seem to prefer to couch or to, to uh, set China up as an enemy? It, whose benefit, would, whose, whose purpose would it serve to make us see China more and more as an enemy? Or maybe I'm misreading this completely. Is no one looking to do that? Is there no particular uh, group or, or interest that is moving in that direction of enemizing, as it were, China? Well, there absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, certainly, yeah. um, those supporters of Donald Trump, right of center political groups in the United States, including some of uh, America's uh, corporate leadership, would like that to be the case because by challenging China politically or militarily, they would also be challenged economically. So, yes, there are those interests, but let me add there are interests in China who would, who have. Uh, decided, and we see this in many of China's cultural products uh, today, that would like to see the U.S. identified uh, as uh, as the enemy, uh, a weakening enemy that uh, who, who that, that China will succeed in global leadership. So it does work both ways. Charles, would you agree with that? I would like to invert the question and continue what. Vinny ended with, and to ask Su, if there is a lobby in China to cast the United States as an adversary, and furthermore, to discuss the issue of Taiwan and the one China policy. Uh, well, to my knowledge, because I'm no expert on politics or anything like this, but just from my own personal experiences, 
I don't think there's a, a lobbying process going on, uh, making U.S. as a enemy. I don't think China wants anybody as an enemy. Um, but uh, well, I think about Taiwan. I think the government is gonna is gonna stand the ground and um, it's gonna do it. It's just a matter of time, I think, to take Taiwan back. By any means necessary, including by military invasion and occupation. Um, well, uh, I don't know, but I think um, from my experiences that Chinese government would avoid it as much as it can because it's uh, um, meaningless to wage war on them, especially on them, um, because from we are all taught um, <laughs> very differently. Um, than you, but uh, we're taught we're brothers and sisters, and we don't. It's just meaningless to 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 do harm to each other. So, but uh, eventually, this is. Uh, I think the Chinese government would not back off on this. We'll see. I don't know. If the if, if China is saying that there is no way for us not to be reunified, then obviously the military and the ugly parts of that remain on the table. Uh, witness what is about to happen or appears to be about to happen with Russia and Ukraine. Maybe this will be a bit of a, a training ground. Uh, Bill Mulligan has managed to join us, broken through whatever the technological haze was that may have been preventing you. Thank oh, you for finally getting it. Haze. I, 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 was, <laughs> I got an email that created a crisis and something, and I lost track of the time. Well, I'm just glad you're here, Bill. Uh, I want to go back to what, Vin, what, what, what Vinny was saying. Please, I think go ahead. Yeah. The, the current politics, we look for enemies. We look for villains. Um, you know, we're, in Kentucky, we're one of the states that has these crazy laws on uh, how you can teach American history, and you can't teach anything that will make a student upset. You can't, you can't teach, you can't teach about slavery or you hotline. You have to. They actually just amended the bill. The original bill actually said teachers should discuss both aspects of the Holocaust, the good and the bad. <laughs> um, you know what is the good side of the I guess the good side of the Holocaust is that some people resisted. <laughs> yeah, and tried, yeah, and tried to help Jews escape. Actually, I just a friend of mine is a journalist, and I just wrote like fifteen hundred words for him denouncing this this attack on history. But this is of a piece. We make China our enemy. We rally the base. They vote for more restrictions. In a large part, you know, we created China. I mean, the, the, the outsourcing of things to China, isn't that the, one of the main foundations of their economy that got it up and running? Yeah. Is American companies falling all over themselves to have things made in China um, to save labor costs? I mean, we're, we're tied to them in economic ways that it'll be almost impossible to unravel. I mean, that's the real danger with Taiwan is what do we do? Yeah, we're, so yeah. we're so economically interconnected with the Chinese. You know, yeah. the cost to our economy will be astronomical. Plus, I, I was I, Taiwan apparently produces ninety two percent of the high end computer chips in the world right now. What can you make without high end computer chips? I, I think it's important to add, if I I, I made that. Many, before we see Chinese troops marching into Taiwan, 
that China has historically not been an aggressor nation. And most Americans are not aware of that. What it would prefer to do is something along the lines of what it's done uh, in Tibet with populations like the Uyghurs, who uh, admittedly are being oppressed by the Chinese government. But what China would prefer to do is use propaganda, use education, uh, and take the long view. So Taiwan may not be incorporated into China in our lifetimes, but at some point down the road, what the Chinese government hopes to do is slowly uh, cement those ties to Taiwan, where, I mean, in essence, uh, it will control it uh, and it will, it will be independent in name only in the same sense that uh, Hong Kong uh, has become a separate in, in, in name only. So my sense is that uh, we will likely see Taiwan as part of greater China, uh, but I have my doubts about uh, a military solution uh, 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 to, uh, at this point. So a, a Russian-Ukrainian type situation is just unthinkable at this point? It's not unthinkable. Uh, th these days, <laughs> what we've learned is nothing is unthinkable. Yeah. Um, but um, it's less, less likely that we will see uh, military aggression. And, you know, I think Bill raised an important point. Taiwan is absolutely critical, uh, yes, to the global economy, but it's specifically to China's economy bears clarifying that the chips that are being made in, in Taiwan, much of that is going just across the straits over there. A lot there, right. you know, China is not exactly being excluded from Taiwan's uh, production capabilities chips wise. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, you see yeah. Foxconn offices all over China. Uh, I visited them. Uh, it, that does lead people to confuse and think Foxconn the leading chip producer in Taiwan is actually a Chinese company. It's not. It's it's Taiwanese. But again, in this process of cementing ties between China and Taiwan, uh, it has built such close relationships that uh, it, it doesn't matter uh, at this point whether Taiwan is a province of China or just a very closely linked to it. Is China looking to guide precisely how we see it and what is it that they want us to see that they might not be? It's, it's very complex and we don't get any sense here in uh, North America, I would include Canada, my home in that, uh, of the complexity of China. That goes specifically yeah. to the way in which average citizens deal with the Chinese system. Because the central government wants an authoritarian solution to most issues doesn't mean that it succeeds. And the ways around everything from creating virtual public networks that and uh, using them to get access to Western social media, uh, the formation of underground groups that represent uh, resistance. There is, there is lots of talk, and I've joined um, uh, groups that identify themselves as China's new left, which is, essentially uh, is, it means those in, in China 
who oppose Chinese communism as uh, uh, identified by Xi Jinping's government. So that's very complex. I think the other thing I think uh, North Americans need to understand about China is, is that it has done uh, a, made remarkable strides in uh, areas like uh, uh, climate change and the environment. I mean, I, uh, just one concrete example, and there are many, but I can recall taking a high-speed train uh, from Shanghai uh, to, in, uh, in fact, Wuhan, uh, now infamous, and observing as we, we as the train bulleted through village after village, mm. uh, I saw uh, most homes, however simple, had solar panels on their roofs. Wow. And I asked my Chinese host, you know, what that was about. And he said, well, essentially, the government provides people with solar panels free uh, and installs solar energy. Now, how significant, how substantial, what sort of saving that involves, I'll leave to others. But it was a striking example to me of something about China uh, that uh, most North Americans who focus on air pollution levels in Shanghai don't understand. Charles, you were about to respond to something that Sue was bringing up, I think, when we were talking about projection yes. of an image. Sue yeah. asked the um, epistemological question, what is Chinese reality, yeah. <laughs> thereby betraying in part his former obsession with such questions in philosophy classes. Uh. <laughs> Ah, um, okay. <laughs> especially around the notion of, of the world in the philosophy of the early Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> I tried on many occasions to dissuade Sue from his lingering uh, obsession with the early Wittgenstein with the following, that Wittgenstein changed his mind and radically rejected everything he had uh, written before the 1940s, which leads me to the question of illusion and reality. And I want to tie that to COVID. And I want to do that for several reasons. First, as someone with the background in public health who has connections, um, let's put it this way, uh, both strategic and medical, to various um, leading-edge, high-tech public health and uh, virological concerns. And I'd like Sue to say what he thinks about the reality here as opposed to the image. I have been told that the origins of the uh, COVID-19 were in fact in the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a long-running gain-of-function project that initially had been partially funded by the American National Institute of Health under the stewardship of another Regis alumnus, Dr. Anthony Fauci. And then the Americans got out and the French replaced them. And the French co-sponsorship of the Institute was called into question when they believed they observed inadequate control mechanisms for the containment of 
uh, a level four virus lab, which is where the COVID virus may or may not have escaped. And I have another source who's a physicist biologist who speaks Chinese, who worked in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and he corroborates that narrative that, in fact, it is a, a gain-of-function pathogen manufactured in that lab under Western co-sponsorship that leaked out from the lab to a middle-level Chinese uh, medical assistant who is identified and is known to the Chinese authorities and the American government as Patient X. And that Patient X did unwittingly transmit the disease through um, the seafood market. Now, I have that as a joint narrative by two on-site sources. I'm sure Sue knows better than I do that a very leading Chinese virologist who tried to disclose the threat of COVID-19 to the party, the Communist Party of China, uh, actually wound up dead from the virus and is now sort of canonized in Chinese law um, as a truth teller. And despite that, the Chinese government, uh, from the Western point of view, has refused to allow adequate access to the lab and to the scientists working there in order to conduct an independent investigation of the origins of the disease. My question to Sue is, how do you distinguish between myth and reality in an origin story as important as the origins of the COVID-19 virus? What is the story that is told in China and do the people believe it? Uh, yeah, I think the main story told was, uh, I think they're diverted to its American lab that uh, leaked it. It's the same story, just uh, you change the subject and object, and, and uh, it's, the, it's the same function. Um, but the reality, I think, I don't know, we, it's hard to know, but WTO, WTO team was there a few times, so um, I don't know which, which version to believe, to be honest. But uh, the Chinese story was told it was, it was other people's fault. Is the Communist Party story the one that's become the dominant narrative? Or are most people actually skeptical of it precisely because it is the dominant narrative? Great question. Great question, Charles. Response. Yeah. Uh, I think pe people believe it. Believe what, uh, like, uh, it is. Um... Do people believe the government? Yes. Okay. Why do people believe I, I the government? I would second that. They believe it on, yeah. On, yeah. On, on that issue, and um, they and go they on to accept the view that China, the Chinese government, and this is more important to most people, the origins can be debated, but that the Chinese government did a better job than its uh, competitors in controlling and in managing uh, the spread of COVID. And that's widely believed among the Chinese I have an association with. Yes, and that that is just one example that uh, people are citing. Well, there are also people are skept skeptical about um, what uh, government government is saying, but uh, more and more people with example like this, uh, people have more uh, 
faith in what's actually happening and the, uh, the efficiency and effectiveness of how government deal with different sorts of things. That, that sounds curiously kind of like what happens in this country. Uh, <laughs> everybody takes sides uh, based on your, your, your belief system seems to follow the particular group that you affiliate with. And, and from everything that I'm hearing from Charles and from you, Sue, the, the actual facts are still pretty much in the direction that Charles put them, but the Chinese people would prefer to simply believe their government. It's our side versus your side. It's Republicans versus Democrats. I, I, don't, know. There, I don't know how far to draw that analogy, but it, it sounds like it's interestingly going in that direction. But we're going to figure out if it does go in that direction and then some more about internal uh, Chinese thought and maybe invariably American internal politics and how they relate to all of this after we take a little break to think about what we've said so far. And we typically do that on center-left radio and especially in our Noble Hearts forums with a little jazz. Thank you. 
This is Richard Gazer. You know, it takes lots of time and effort and all kinds of resources to produce the kind of quality program we produce here at Center Left Radio. And it costs money to do it. Now, if we screamed a little louder or thought a little less about what we were saying, we could probably get a few advertisers to pay us to sell their products to a more tribally predictable audience. But that's not who we are or who you are. You come to Center Left Radio for non-commercial, thoughtful commentary. You're looking for an honest, progressive approach to solving America's problems, not exacerbating them. And we're committed to providing all of that. We're one of the few stations offering full-time, non-commercial, progressive programming. And we're the only station, the only one, doing it with a combination of hope, politics, and that most eloquent of all original American art forms, jazz. Think of it this way. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment and go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can. On a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, whatever you can contribute to make center-left radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant as the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident and as we seek to hold the House Democrats accountable for the promises they made to the American people during the last election. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central Left Radio, thank you. You're listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz, and I'm here with you. My name is Richard Gazer, and we're presenting another of our Noble Hearts forums uh, today on the topic of China. Our guests today are Dr. Charles Webel, Dr. Vinnie Moscow, Dr. Bill Mulligan, Su Luo, who will be a doctor at some point, and I am not. Uh, I am simply a lowly uh, local New York lawyer, but I guess, I don't know, do I, am I a PhD wannabe? I won't even go anywhere near that. Uh, and we are talking about China. Uh, we're talking about a lot of different ways of looking at China. I want to just add in here in the way of housekeeping, uh, if you're listening to us right now, you're listening because you've gone to our website, well, you may already have it plugged in someplace and you don't have to go and put in the entire website, but we're at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. When you, when you key that in, when you hit that link, you will find yourself on the Center Left Radio homepage. There are two links at the very top of that page. The first link is our podcast feed. You may be listening to us as a podcast, but the second link is for something that um, is a little different uh, in the area of political or any other talk online capability. We call it a, uh, a radio loop. And essentially what it is is a separate, well, here in the, here in the studio, it's a separate computer running this show, this very show, in a loop, 
And when you hit that link for the radio loop, you'll pick up this show at whatever point it happens to be. It plays constantly 24-7. And you will, if you happen to be of a particular uh, age, maybe that might be one of the defining factors, uh, where turning on the radio and seeing what was there as you scan the dial was the way you sought out your entertainment, news, music, uh, talk, or anything else. Well, that'll be appealing. But you have the choice with Center Left Radio. Join us at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. Pick us up as either a podcast or a radio loop. Back to where we were. The issue is perceptions being put out by governments. And I think as we left this before the break, uh, I, I, I'm curious to know just how much of an analogy there might be with the way Americans are picking up their political information and the reactions they have versus the Chinese. Clearly, the Chinese don't have a system that allows for the absurd diversity, the, 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 the polarizations that we have right now, and it's certainly not for those to be in mainstream and be in the media. Or maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there is room in China right now for more diversity of opinion. I think this was suggested before. Sue, if someone that you know doesn't agree with the particular way in which China, as a government, projects mm-hmm. the story about COVID that Charles was taking us through with the, the, the footnoting was all there. What if you don't believe that? What can you do? Can you say it? Do you say it? Who would you say it to? How would it be expressed? And what would the reactions be? Uh, people post their thoughts on uh, Chinese Twitter, something like that. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there are a lot of rantings. And uh, even though I think no, no uh, real action can be done still, I would say, but... Uh, uh, people are ranking by government online all the time, uh, even though certainly not as much as in U.S. for sure. But uh, uh, they sit and uh, fine, um, and people generally forget about it after a few days. Uh, they are covered then by something else. For example, some superstar get cheated on or whatever. Somehow those things just get kind of flushed out uh, in a few days. So there's no, uh, the sense I'm getting from what you're saying, and I, and I, and I want to shift this around to our panel. Vinny, this is probably going to go back to you pretty quickly. If someone does say something that is out of step with the government position, it's not as though someone comes knocking on the door uh, in the middle of the night that night and there's that type of consequence, but it's almost a benign ignoring. Is that kind of what you're suggesting takes place and it just sort of drifts away? Is, is that the position? You know, we, 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 have a, we have an image in this country of, of China being pretty reactive when it comes to anybody disagreeing with it. Um... Certainly, no, no one's gonna come and knock on the door at night. For sure. But uh, um, what would trigger them to? I think only on specific topics, like Taiwan is one of it, uh, or separation or whatever. Uh, and other than that, uh, or I, I wanna like uh, uprising or revolution stuff like this might get triggered. But other than that, yeah. like if you didn't go. Like, say, if you, this one you didn't do a good job, uh, say, okay, yeah, well, we'll, we'll do, hopefully I'll do better. And, you know? 
Vinny, is that your perception from what you've seen yeah, in China? I, yeah, I think it's important um, to recognize that some people have received a knock on the door. Notable Chinese intellectuals who have written extensively, have close Western ties. Uh, artists like Ai Weiwei have gotten the knock on the door. So, yes, people have uh, uh, felt the full weight of Chinese authority. With that said, let's understand that's a tiny minority. Mm. Most people, um, as, as we all do, treat this dialectically. We, we hear one thing and we think another thing. And that might extend to conversations. Students I've taught chat about this all the time, uh, recognize that there are problems in the government. Uh, and there are, there are a set of important strategies that uh, uh, people use to spread a broader range of ideas. One of them uh, affects me directly. I'm brought into China in part because I can talk about democracy without getting into trouble. Mm. Uh, so I, I give lectures on Marxism, on political economy, on how to think critically, on the importance of democracy. Um, so um, I've talked about democracy at a conference in the Great Hall of the People, one of the things I'm most proud of. And uh, the reaction was normal, you know, applause and questioning. So uh, there is, there are opportunities to spread ideas. Now, with that said, it's also important to understand that the central government is becoming more concerned about this, is beginning to crack down on uh, uh, important institutions like universities. Uh, for example, appointing party members now as mm -hmm. deans of, of colleges and universities. So that's significant. So there is an encroachment, uh, but um, by and large, there is a... a a kind of underworld of critical understanding and reflection that sometimes percolates up to the government, which, uh, you know, has some uh, people who understand the importance of hearing the opposition and sometimes even acting to bring about changes. But that's all done, you know, at the very pinnacle of authority in China. Mm. Is there any sense, and I, I throw this out to uh, everybody, uh, I guess Sue and Vinnie primarily, but, but Charles and Bill, is there a sense that we're missing out on something in our system? Are we lacking something? Do the Americans or do democracies, Western democracies generally, have something we wish we had? Um, you're talking about in terms of uh, political? In terms of political, in terms of economic, in terms of anything, anywhere you'd like to take that thought. I think one important thing is that Chinese people are just people like you. We have our problems in life, like uh, maybe school, uh, kids going to school, they have to worry about their bills, they have to worry about their debts. They're not that bored to, to <laughs> sabotage other people. Really, yeah. they have their worries and they have... Their concerns and they have their own happiness so um they really are not that <laughs> bored i would say um uh, in terms of that and uh, for politics i before i used to think 
I was a little brainwashed back then that uh, democracy is omnipotent, but uh, it doesn't have to be. I wonder if we if we flip the question around. It seems that in our society right now, there are incentives politically to be untruthful. <laughs> Great point. To, to, Great spread, point. to spread misinformation. Yeah. To create false demons and false narratives that upset people who then turn out and put you into power. And that, that democracy has this downside. If, you know, if, if you go back to the Federalist Papers, they, it's talked about. The risks of democracy, the risks of um, people appealing to people's lower, baser instincts. And, um, and we, we're seeing so much of it here now. Um, so I wonder if the Chinese you know, system, but, I mean, what would the incentive be to spread a false narrative? It's not going to be an election. It's not going to be yeah. a competitive election. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas here... There are people who, and we clearly see it, who don't hesitate to to spread misinformation of, of the most incredible sort. Are you aware of any concerted effort to put out misinformation? Anyone, Sue? Uh, putting misinformation online intentionally? Yeah, just for the sake of doing it. Just And, and I guess going with Bill, this is sort of using the American model of what is clearly misinformation, uh, Vinny was saying before we came on air that uh, not too long before he was on air with us, uh, a truck was blaring past to where he lives, and it was blaring out a Donald Trump uh, speech together yes. with Trump flags traveling down the street. I mean, if, if there was ever a statement of misinformation, that sort of thing would never happen, I, I assume, in China. You could not imagine something like that happening or to that extreme. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> but let me pose a counterexample. The counterexample is the Uyghur. Exactly. As I, under, as I understand it, the Chinese euphemism for their treatment is re-education. The Western hyperbolic exaggeration is genocide. What is the difference between reality and perception in China about the treatment of the Uyghur? Well, I think it's it's uh, yeah more or less made up, at least from what I know. But maybe certainly my opinion is biased. My source of information is also 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 biased. But uh, I think largely it's not true. You mean it's re-education or it's uh, a kind of genocide light? <laughs> certainly not genocide, because well, in my, the minorities they get treated better than all of us. That's the thing. I don't know if you know this, but uh, for example, in the standardized test, I'm the Han minority. I'm the Han Chinese, like the, the majority. Han. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, it's written on our whatever the card that we have, identity card, that you are this, you're Han, or you're Mongolian, you're Manchurian, whatever. And if you are, you get you know better better treatments. Like in the standard test, you get just ten scores more just for just because you're minority and all those things. Sue, so what was the reaction to uh, during the opening of the uh, of the Winter Games uh, yeah. in Beijing? A Uyghur, uh, I believe it was a Uyghur, was one of the two people who ultimately lit the Olympic flame, if you recall that. And the American media was making a big thing about that. Was that a big deal in China? Was that played up? Have you heard much about that? 
I didn't watch it, but I know this. I, yeah. I think it was a little bit of a, of a show there for sure, like to show that, but because normally you'll be <laughs> you'll be a Han Chinese do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, sure, I mean they're trying to, to to show this. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, I mean, there is no doubt that there is a great deal of propaganda put out by. Uh, the Chinese government around the Uyghurs, around Tibet, around other uh, generally exploited minorities. Uh, I wouldn't certainly go as far as to refer to this as genocide, but nor would I consider it a, a, a simple process of education or even re-education. Um, with that said, it is the case, and Sue is absolutely correct, that the Chinese government spends a lot of money on, uh, well, for example, education of ethnic minorities. There are entire universities that are very well funded uh, that uh, are required to hold more than 50% of students from the 5% of Chinese who come from ethnic minorities. Wow. I've lectured at these universities. They're very well funded. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a minimum of propaganda within them, though they exist in museums and, and other places that can put those minority cultures on display. Uh, at the same time, there is, again, a process of incorporation, if not actual, you know, uh, a physical coercion of more than a handful of people uh, who come from the Uyghur minority, uh, from Tibet, uh, and, and from other uh, parts of China that contain majority ethnic uh, groups. Uh, all this is to say, and it's, it's difficult because most people look for simple understandings and simple solutions, but it's very complex. And the understandings that uh, the Chinese themselves has, from what I can see, are, are very complex. Um, so it, 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 it's a challenging situation, but uh, I would only add one thing to the point about what, chi what Chinese people uh, admire about the United States. It may have once been democracy. I don't think it's any longer the case. I think it's education. Um, Chinese elites still send their children to mm. uh, U.S. universities. I have friends whose children are getting ready to parents are getting ready to send their kids to U.S. universities. They're widely admired and are the envy, not because of the openness of discourse, but because of the access to resources and technology. Mm. I, I wanted to just add, just jump into one other area here. Uh, and I think I have my answer. Is there any concern or any reason for concern with the fact that Chinese is one of the main, not the, well, it's one of America's financiers. They own a chunk of our national debt. But one of the things I used to hear was, well, whatever, what would ever happen if suddenly China decided to basically sell America's debt? Is this even on the radar? Well, I think right now it's not a, a pressing, you know, concern. It, it, I, in the long term, obviously, the, the level to which our economies are interconnected through their, their owning of our debt, the huge amount of things we import from China, 
that could be, you know, it used to be a joke. The United States can't go to war for Ch- with China because they won't lend us the money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously, it, it ha- at some point, it could be an issue. The, 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 I guess the counterbalancing thing I think that what's happened, though, is they all, they're so in, in integrated into our economy, if they decide to sell off our national debt, They'll they'll lose a huge amount of money because the bottom will fall out of yeah it's it's self reflexive yeah and if if you know if if we we get into a a real trade war and we stop importing a lot of stuff from us then they're going to have unemployment issues and they're going to have economic consequences we almost have to sit down and realize whatever else is going on. Our countries are so connected economically that we have to figure out how to be friends. (laughs) We have to figure out how to live together because neither side is going to do well if there's a real conflict. Maybe we're taking this whole thing backwards. What is it that America should be doing to gain a greater benefit from our relationship with China? Maybe, Maybe rather than thinking defensively and i wonder what if this hurts us does that hurt us and so on how do we proactively or with the chinese begin developing things that are to both of our advantages if we are that interwoven or is there a thought process out there that would permit that sort of a uh, an evolution in that direction well anyway. i think it is the case that american business leaders and chinese business leaders interact closely. I mean, after all, Alibaba has planted its flag in, in Silicon Valley. It's there. Yeah. Uh, it's traded on the U.S. stock market. So uh, there are close economic ties. The fear isn't so much that China will go out and sell its debt. It's that its economy, which right now under, uh, generally agreed upon, is, is overextended, might suffer a severe economic downturn that could bring both economies uh, uh, down for uh, a crash. So um, I think, for example, of of China's uh, uh, One Belt, One Road uh, project, which is essentially one of the the most significant uh, examples of what one might call economic imperialism in the history of the world. I mean, it essentially wants to control all modes of transportation, communication, resource extraction in a project that extends globally. Now, what, what that means is that China has, has a risked huge amounts of capital in order to carry this out. And there are some within China who question uh, there have been, you know, boondoggles associated with it, failures in construction projects. And the fear in that area, as well as in the overextended housing market in China, is that China may drag the American economy down, not through a conscious act of policy, but through economic failure. So that if China succeeds in its one road yeah. approach to things and does well economically, America, ironically, rather than saying, oh my goodness, this is the worst competitive thing that could ever happen to us, 
potentially stands to benefit just because of the interaction? Or should we be more concerned about China's marketing and global expansion uh, activities at this point? Well, I, I think that both are accurate here. Uh, there are uh, business elites, including those who partner with their Chinese counterparts, who certainly have a huge stake in China's economic uh, success. Yeah. On the other hand, as the U.S. has demonstrated, as Europe demonstrated, uh, when it engaged in broad programs of economic imperialism, uh, we can't segment the economy from, from the political. So, in fact, by succeeding in uh, becoming the, the, the nation responsible for the world's infrastructure, China will gain enormous amounts of political leverage that it might be able to make use of uh, in, an, in, a, in a political crisis. So uh, this is something that we need to pay much more attention to. Um, and uh, I don't know that we're doing so in part because so much of this is bound up with right-left ideology that uh, obscures a lot of uh, the details. Right-left American ideology, yeah. Sorry, yeah. right-left yeah. American ideology. Yeah, I think, you know, the right has demonized foreign aid and, and, and investment on and, and that's, I think, hurts. We, we've essentially left the field open to the Chinese. I mean, you know, think about the Marshall Plan and think about the investment the U.S. made to rebuild Europe yeah. after World War II and all of the positive positives we gained from that, not only jobs here, but goodwill and stable, you know, a stable European market for, for goods. But we've, we've, we've increasingly backed away from helping non-white yeah. nations yeah. <laughs> um, in, develop. And so the, and the Chinese are moving in and they're, and they're getting the, not only the economic benefit, but the potential political benefit. And I think some of what we have to accept is that China is going to be a great power. They are going to be a great power, and they are going to want to have influence over their part of the world. So if we get upset about the Chinese activities in the South China Sea, we might want to look in the mirror and look at American activities in the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> we might want to revisit U.S. interventions in, in Chile and, and countless other countries before we start saying those evil Chinese are, you know, um, jumping the fence and getting involved where they shouldn't get involved. Wow. Um, you know, we, we have to, like as I said, I think we need to find ways to work together. And if, they're, if their sphere of influence, if they want to have more influence in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, we probably need to find a way to make that work for us and for the other countries involved rather than to try to bl block it or um, open up the way for conflict. Is it really necessary that U.S. Navy ships can sail wherever they want in the South China Sea? Mm. Is, is that an absolute mm. necessity uh, for the future of the United States? I'm not so sure. Um, I'd be much more willing to let the Chinese have control of the South China Sea as long as there's some kind of guarantees that Korea and Japan and they will all um, you know play well together and prosper together rather than uh, but I think we try to block China's legitimate aspirations to do basically what we've done in our part of the world we're just going to have trouble so if we went back to uh, to the original question uh, is China an enemy or is it a perceived enemy or what should we be perceiving I think the answer 
seems to be coming down to, and I think well footnoted, that we are seeing uh, the results of our inaction creating much of what China is taking advantage of, and we're seeing our internal politics fantasizing what China needs to be in order to feed the polarization of our current politics, none of which speaks to us acting very rationally and thoughtfully in, in terms of how we deal with China right now. What is there something more that we could be doing besides the large industrialists of America having very close relationships with the Chinese, with their Chinese manufacturing counterparts and all that? How do we get better at working with the Chinese? Is there something more we could be doing? The next way is to physically go there and, and visit, mm -hmm. visit the country and see how people live. And uh, you will have completely different... Uh, uh, idea about um, <laughs> what, what's the Mark Twain quote? Anybody? Uh, travel is is uh, uh, deadly for prejudice, uh, ignorance, and uh, there's something else. But there's an old yeah. Mark Twain quote about that. Uh, Go back with something what Vinny mentioned. You know, we get a lot of Chinese students in the United States, yeah. and I think we need to work on getting as many Americans to go study yes. in China. Yes. So that there's reciprocal knowledge. Even even at Murray State, we get a significant number of students from mainland China. Uh, and Murray Murray's not you know one of the great you know it's not an Ivy League school, but we get quite a few uh, kids from China. And it's it's for our rural West Kentucky population, interacting with people from China is a, is a powerful experience. And we get a lot of Korean students too. Um, we need to make that reciprocal so that we don't just meet them here, but we meet, we, we go there. I mean, I think you do see the world, you know, in a very, very different way. And maybe we need the, go the government to f find ways to make it more affordable for students to go. And one of the, one of the things is it, it, can, it can be kind of expensive to go study overseas for a year. Um, but there's ways around that. There's ways to fix that. So I'm, I'm a big believer in more, more interaction and to encourage, you know, one of the, I think the saddest things about America is, the low percentage of people who have passports. Yeah. Wow. If, if I may wave my Canadian flag here for a second, um, uh, Canada has done a remarkable job of building joint university relationships with, uh, with China. Many of our students go over and study in China at all levels, undergraduate, graduate. Uh, and uh, I think the U.S. can learn from the ties uh, your neighbor to the north has has built with China um, on the education, cultural, and other levels. And the other lesson is this does not then preclude anyone from being critical of, of China's policies. Yeah. And uh, not to fear that kind of connection that uh, Sue is, is referring to. Go there, observe how people live their day-to-day -day lives. And I, it, it certainly has opened my eyes over uh, the last 15, 20 years of, of travel across uh, China. Wow. Charles, I haven't heard from you in a bit. I hope it's not your technical connection. No, it's um, what the U.S. government and many U.S. institutions, including a couple I've taught in, have feared as knowledge leakage 
and of what the U.S. does everywhere, which is to gather information. There is a fear, and I wonder how justified it is, of the other way around, of Chinese espionage, especially of high-techs um, in Silicon Valley and around Route 128 in, in Massachusetts. As I'm sure you know, there have been very famous cases of Chinese and Chinese-American scientists who've been vilified for essentially uh, selling secrets to China, which of course happens from the other way around. But um, I wonder if that danger is overstated or that's simply one of the acceptable risks that's involved in increased uh, education and cultural exchange. In, in my opinion, the uh, that's overstated. I think you're, you're right, Charles, that uh, um, there are cases that one might cite, but the reality is that at the very dawn of the globalization of the current uh, system in China, the U.S. joined its European allies in setting the terms for China's entry in the World Trade Organization. And uh, whether you argue they were uh, too lenient or not, um, uh, that's, uh, that's a matter for historians to discuss. But it's the case that the U.S. has essentially provided China with all of the tools to develop its global economy. And in some respects, that was done consciously to, to enable uh, the Chinese and the U.S. to work together to succeed. So that uh, one of the things that's often cited regarding China is its mass high-tech surveillance system but almost all of the technology that has gone into that uh, system was provided by American companies, whether in intellectual property or outright technology. So, so it's the case that uh, while we, we, we focus on spy, uh, uh, spying examples, the reality is that we, we've opened the door to the Chinese to copy from the United States, in part to enable them to better interact in a capitalist global economy and not revert to any alternative. Hmm. Sue, I'm going to leave the last word to you. You're you are a you're my first uh, Chinese uh, PhD candidate student who is participating in a Noble Hearts forum. Do you think more Chinese students would want to be doing what you're doing? Uh, doing this podcast? Or doing your well, <laughs> being, being, that's, there's a thought. Not this podcast particularly, no, I don't think so. But being able to travel and be outside of the country, how large a group of people are there outside? Are you aware of many other Chinese students like yourself traveling apart around the world and studying? Yeah, my, my high school classmates, they're all abroad, uh, oh, wow. maybe they went to UK. I mean, my, my, my high school was a kind of international, so we're aiming to, uh, it's not a like a normal, regular uh, Chinese high school, let's say. Uh, so it was slightly different, but uh, I think no matter what people, if they have a chance, they, they would like to go go abroad because it will so they increase their value. When they go back, they might have a good job and good life and all that. So I think, uh, generally, Chinese students, which is why there are so many Chinese students going to the U.S. to study, because uh, essentially they will make, change their life and make their life better. And uh, I think that's what uh, all of us, all of us, want to do. We would just want to live a happy life and live a richer life as well. 
I think that's great. I think I think basically what where we're coming to at the at towards now the end of this show, <clears throat> this forum is that as we improve our own lives in America, as we <clears throat> forgive me, as we as we start getting past our own limitations, our own failure to look outward, dealing with our own internal lack of communication, as we get better talking to one another, we may very well find an easier way to talk with others as long as we can't talk to ourselves. We're going to have a pretty hard time dealing with other cultures. I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. But I think it's great to have shows like this or a forum like this to kind of get the idea out there that traveling, that, that finding a way to interact interculturally is really the only way we have to overcome a lot of the perceived fears, the perceived enemy notion, and everything else that's riding through so much of what we're doing right now. And it, it's a pleasure to be able to present something like this and doing it uh, with our Noble Hearts panel today, Dr. Vinnie Mosco, Dr. Bill Mulligan, Dr. Charles Webble, Sulwa, and uh, for uh, Center Left Radio, and on behalf of everybody here in our Noble Hearts uh, Forum, uh, thank you for listening and think about what we're talking about over here today. It's um, as we uh, work our way past our own political strangeness at the moment. Thank you to all of you, and uh, let's close this one out with a little more jazz.
been listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thanks so much for being part of today's show. My special thanks to today's panelists, Dr. Vinnie Mosco, Dr. Bill Mulligan, Dr. Charles Webble, and Sue Lowell for giving us really some, some major insight into the nature of Sino-American relationships and alerting us to so many things that we don't normally focus on. That's what these Noble Hearts forums are all about. We'll be having many more in the weeks and months ahead, so stay with us.